This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful we can be here today to study your word your word which you knew from eternity past, that sh- that is an expression of your thought system. It's an expression of uh, your viewpoint on all creation. It is your revelation to us to enable us to live life well, to live life successfully, and to live in such a way as to glorify and honor you. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might uh, be attentive, responsive, uh, be able to focus and concentrate upon what you have for us in your word today, that we might, that it might be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us spiritually, to focus us, and that as a result we might be edified and matured in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen. Today we are in Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs chapter 8. Now, I know somebody's probably thinking, well, last week we were in Proverbs 6. Did we skip another chapter? You remember last year, last January, I believe, I skipped chapter 2. That was an omission from jet lag or something that was going on. This is an intentional omission. If you recall, when we got into uh, Proverbs chapter 5, um, and 5 and 7 deal uh, extensively with the warnings to the son about the immoral woman, the adulterous wife. And so I taught those lessons, summarized what was in those two lessons in one class uh, a couple of lessons back. And so that is why I skipped over chapter 7. Chapter 8, though, focuses on, begins the conclusion to uh, this first section in Proverbs, the introduction of the first, uh, first nine chapters. And in this section, the focus, at least the first 11 verses, is on the availability of wisdom to all. There are, as I have said, ten lessons in, these, in the first nine chapters, down through 9.18, uh, ten lessons dealing with wisdom. This is addressed from the father uh, to the son. Most people believe that these proverbs are from written, at least collected, by Solomon. That is why in the first verse it states that these are the proverbs of Solomon. Solomon is writing this as a tr- for the training of his own son. But these were written down, many believe, to be a training manual 
for the uh, education training of the leaders within the nation as the Davidic kingdom had expanded uh, so greatly and had uh, begun to solidify its organization and administration under, under Solomon. Solomon wrote this not only as a training manual for his son, but also as a training manual for raising up uh, wise, godly leaders who would function in all areas of the bureaucracy within Israel. It was a way of passing on the truth of God's word from one generation to the next. And thus it also forms a, a, matter, a manual and pattern for families to pass on the word of God generationally. The core training unit in throughout all of history is the family, the third divine institution, not the church, not the public school, not the private school, not the Sunday school, but the family. And pr the primary responsibility for training within the family goes to the father. Now, today we live in an environment in the United States when families aren't what they ought to be. In fact, the problem we have today is that we have many, uh, many families that due to divorce, uh, due to criminality, due to the welfare state that has been foisted on this country in, in a very foolish manner, causing a tremendous br uh, breakup of uh, the uh, destruction of the second and third divine institutions, uh, marriage and family. Uh, it is unusual today to find a, a good good family. Now, some people say, well, even when things were supposedly good back in the 40s and 50s, we still had dysfunctional families. I hate that word dysfunctional, but the Bible has a better word. It's called sinful. <laughs> and there have been sinful families ever since Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had a sinful family to the extent that one brother killed another brother. How dysfunctional can you get? Everybody's got a problem with their family. Everybody to one degree or another. It, it, it may be a, a quantitative issue. It, it's certainly not a qualitative one because we're all sinners. But it's the role of the family to pass on the word of God. And it's the role of the, the and in Israel, you not only had the closeness of the family, but also because the tribes lived in the same area. They, were, they had the extended family, uh, otherwise known as a clan, and today, in many cases, you have the, the, the grandfather may be the spiritual head of the home simply because the father may not be around. And in other sad cases, there's no solid male leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that if you uh, are not married and you have children that you need to run off and find some guy. You know, a, bad decisions do not get better with more bad decisions. We have to make wise decisions. And so we often start off in life in a deficit position. And this is true for all of us. Because of sin, because of carnality, we start in a uh, position where uh, we're, we're far from, from the ideal and we just have to do the best we can with whatever it is, uh, whatever the circumstances are that we find ourselves in and push forward to improve and to follow the word of God and to grow spiritually because there's always hope and there's always the, the blessing of God 
which is our support, which enables us to overcome any and all uh, negative situations and circumstances. And the key to that comes down to wisdom. And wisdom is the skillful application of God's word, which means to have wisdom, we have to practice obedience to God's word. And to practice obedience to God's word means we have to know God's word, which means that's the highest priority. This is the focal point here in this concluding section of these of these lessons. We saw in uh, chapter 5, which was the eighth lesson, the problem of uh, free sex or the problem of immorality, the adulterous uh, wo- woman, the uh, immoral woman. And then last time I focused on these... Uh, uh, different uh, character uh, insights in chapter uh, chapter six, uh, from six twenty to the end of that uh, chapter six, and all of chapter seven formed the ninth and tenth lessons, all dealing with the issues related to the adulterous woman, and so those were all covered under the lesson for chapter five. Those all covered together. Then we come to two uh, appendices to this opening section focusing on the value of wisdom, this cry as it begins in chapter 8, the cry from wisdom to all mankind to respond to the cry and to uh, to listen and make wisdom part of a person's, uh, person's life. And so as we look at chapter 8, come into chapter 8, we'll see three basic divisions in chapter 8. Uh, one through five starts off with talking about the availability of wisdom to all. And verses six to 11, we focus on the attributes and the value of wisdom. And then the benefits and blessings of wisdom begin to get, are spelled out in the last portion of, um, of this opening section, 12 to 21. In verse 22, down through 31, which I didn't put in this part of the outline, it's almost as if there is an aside. And this aside relates to the personification of wisdom as the, the, that which the Lord used in all of creation. Now, this fits into an interesting argument here because what the writer of uh, Proverbs is saying is if wisdom was necessary for God in order to to create such a sophisticated, complex uh, creation, such a beautiful creation, that if, if God needed wisdom to do that, then how much more do you and I need wisdom in order to just deal with our own little areas of creation, uh, innovation, work, family, etc.? And so uh, that in and of itself, that section is a, a significant section. And then in verses uh, 32 to 36, if you'll dire- direct your attention there for me, uh, we'll see the epilogue, sort of a conclusion to this chapter. And I want to start there because 8, 1 through 31 targets or focuses on this conclusion. And it is the first time we read, listen to me. Now, how many times as we have gone through the previous chapters do we hear Solomon telling his son, listen to me, hear me? Uh, chapter 1, verse 8, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands, that's stated as a conditional, but it is expresses a command to the son, the implication to listen and to hear. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. Uh, verse 11, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Again, a uh, challenge to listen uh, and to hear. Verse 21 of chapter 3, My son, uh, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Uh, chapter 4, uh, Hear, my children, the instructions of a father. And give attention to know, understanding. Chapter 5, verse 1, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding. And so we see in each of these lessons this emphasis on listening, on paying attention, on hearing. Uh, chapter 6, verse 20, my son, keep your father's command and don't forsake the law of your mother, uh, almost parallel to chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, chapter 7, my son, keep my words, treasure my commands uh, within you. Again and again, we see this command to listen, to hear. And we come to 8.1, and in 8.1 we read, uh, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? Do you notice a little difference there? Up to this point, we keep hearing each new section start with, My son, listen. My son, keep my words. My son, uh, bind them about your heart. Commands to the son to do something and to listen to wisdom, to hear the words of the Father, who is the personification of, of wisdom, as he is teaching that uh, to his son. But now we have a shift. It's not a, we don't see this uh, opening, my son, listen, until we get down to verse 32. Verse 32 says, now therefore listen to me, and it's not my son, it's my children. Listen to me, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Now the me here is 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 the the father, but it is the father expressing wisdom. It is uh, wisdom talking uh, to the uh, to the son. For it is wisdom that is crying out in verse one. Uh, wisdom crying out and understanding lifting up her voice, and in this. Uh, in this section, wisdom and understanding are used as uh, synonymous terms in order to have the uh, poetic parallelism. So the final command of this, of this chapter is to listen to wisdom for why. Why should I listen to wisdom? Why should I take time on Sunday morning to be in Bible class? I could go fishing. I could be on vacation. I could go camping. I could, in, I don't know why anybody would go camping in Texas between the 1st of May and the middle of October. I used to do that when I was young, and then as I got older, I realized this is really uncomfortable. We not, let's go sometime when it's cool and it's not so muggy and sticky. And uh, yeah, people like to do it. Maybe they uh, today they have campers they can take with air conditioning, probably do. It makes it a little easier. But why give up? Our free time, our recreational time, we have so much less of it today than we did uh, 30 or 40 years ago. You know, remember, I don't know, some of you might remember this. I remember when I was in college taking Sociology 101, and they talked about how we would have 30-day work weeks in another 30 or 40 years, and we would have th every, every weekend would be a three- or four-day weekend, and we would have so much leisure time. What in the world would we do with all of that leisure time? I want to know where did all the leisure time go? People have 30-hour work weeks now, but it's not for leisure. It's because nobody can afford to pay them anymore or they're trying to evade the mandates of, 
of the uh, new health care law and not have any full-time workers so the companies can make money. There are all sorts of reasons, but it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we can actually live on a 30-hour work week. That's not possible anymore. So why should we give up our Sunday morning freedom in order to go to church? Why should we give up time on Tuesday night or Thursday night in order to go to church? I, there are a lot of people in this congregation and who listen to me that over the years have said, why don't you have Bible class one or two more nights a week? The reason I don't have Bible class one or two more nights a week is I think you need to be spending time with your families one or two more nights a week. That's very important. I think that the Word of God's important, and if you want to take time to listen to the Word of God more, we've got somewhere between two and 3,000 hours of Bible study on the Internet that you can listen to. But I think it's important for families to have time, and and we have so much less disposable time today than we did 40 years ago. In the late 60s, the average family, average family of four could be supported by one working father working 40 hours a week. In the late 60s, my, through most of my life growing up, my dad left for work every morning about 7.15, um, went to the bus stop, took the bus downtown. He was an engineer, and when he retired, he was the chairman of the Codes and Standards Department for Tenneco, uh, Tennessee Gas Pipeline Transmission Company. So he was uh, he was not uh, 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 you know just a, an hourly wage earner. Uh, he was, had an executive position, but he caught the bus, took the bus downtown, brought the bus home, got home at 5.20 every day. Never worked more than that. By the time we were done with dinner, it was uh, 6.30 in the evening. There was lots of time to relax and spend time with the family and still go to Bible class three or four nights a week. But that's not possible today. For one thing, we don't live that close to them. Many people have have 45-minute-to-hour commutes both ways, and they're working eight, ten hours a day, and by the time they get home, they're work putting in another hour or two uh, due to the fact that they have a smartphone or an iPad or a computer, and they can work at home. article I read just this last week talked about how our our uh, time off from work is, is uh, uh, shrinking more and more because people are spending time checking their work emails and doing work on their uh, computers, etc., over the weekend, and that takes more and more time away from from your families. People work more. I, I think most people today, most fathers, are working somewhere between 50 and 65 hours a week, not counting the extra commute. We just don't have the disposable time we had at one point, so we have to use wisely the time we have. And I don't think as churches we can expect uh, wisely people to give up four or five or six nights a week and expect them to be in Bible class every single night because life, we just don't have that kind of disposable income. So that's one of the reasons that, that I decided a long time ago that uh, I would teach three hours a week and we would have, uh, with the backlog of doctrine available, that people who wanted more could get more. But since we don't fill up the auditorium every Tuesday night and Thursday night, there are some people. I know there are a lot of people who live stream, and they ha- they have to because of some of these other demands. But the issue is, why should we give up our time to go study the Bible? And that's the answer we get in verse 
the second half of verse 32, for blessed are those who keep my ways. And that takes us back to this key concept that we have all through Proverbs as depicted in the background uh, uh, picture of this slide is that there are two paths. And throughout the book of Proverbs, we have this presentation that life is comprised of choices, the choice between the right way and the wrong way. There's no in-between. One way leads to life, and one way leads to death. And again and again, that's the focal point. Those who keep my ways, the ways of wisdom, is the way, the path of life, in contrast to the path that leads to death. So verse 33 reads, Hear instruction and be wise. Notice how this comes at the conclusion and not at the beginning of this lesson. Uh, Hear instruction, be wise, do not disdain it, do not have disrespect, do not treat the availability of the Word of God lightly. We live in a time of unprecedented Bible teaching. Never before in the history of the human race has so much been available to so many. We have not only this ministry, but probably hundreds of other ministries that, because of the Internet, can put all of their uh, Bible teaching up on the Internet for people around the world to to listen and to study. And we have, I don't know, I, I, I hear reports, there's no way we can track it, but I think we have hundreds of people who listen in South America, in Brazil, uh, every time Jim Myers comes back from Brazil, uh, he said, Robbie, you, you can't believe how many pastors, how many people I'm running into every time who are live streaming, listening to you regularly uh, down in Africa. He goes to Zambia, same thing. He comes back, and Jim's been a, a major reason for this because we'll give him DVDs, and he'll take those with him and pass them out, and, and that has a broad broad impact. There are others, like uh, Claude Broussard has taken uh, um, a lot of the material produced here, Bruce Bumgardner's material, Pine Valley, some others, he and put these out as a sort of a curriculum for training pastors, and they go into Ghana and Nigeria and uh, Zambia and, and many other places in Africa as well as as well as India have no idea how many people uh, have a, access to Bible teaching. And that's just this ministry. And I'm not saying this to promote this ministry. This is just one minor, small speck in a spectrum of ministries where pastors are teaching the Word of God. And that's not counting the number of people who just get online and... Um, and just just listen. They can download lessons. They can listen to the MP3s, watch the videos, uh, everything else. And there's so much out there, not just that, but we have so many of these sophisticated Bible study programs that are out there, from Accordance for Macintosh to Logos, which is available on both Mac and PC, to Word Search and a number of other less sophisticated programs that are out on the Internet that people use to get into the Word Never before in the history of mankind is there so much available to so many. You could spend eight hours a day, seven days a week, listening to somebody really good who really knows the truth teach the Bible from now till the day you go to be with the Lord, and you won't exhaust what's available right now. And yet, we're not doing it. 
I don't mean we in, in a condemnation of the congregation. I'm meaning we as evangelical believers in this country are ignoring it. The vast number of evangelical Christians in this country who claim to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior spend maybe 20 minutes a week listening to anybody do anything close closely resembling a teaching of God's Word. And it's usually so short and so shallow that no baby could ever figure out how to be potty trained, as it were, from listening to those lessons. It, they just don't do it. Because while we live in an age where there's so much prosperity in terms of how much Bible teaching is available, it is a judgment on this generation that so few people avail themselves of the Bible teaching, much less try to apply it. And so that we are, uh, we, this generation will stand in tremendous judgment uh, before God because of the way they have treated uh, the wisdom of God's word with disdain. They have treated it lightly. And then we have a promise in verse 34, Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates. This is wisdom talking. This is a, someone is blessed because every day they are seeking to learn, learn wisdom, to learn the word of God and to learn how to skillfully apply it. Watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors for whoever, and here we have the ultimate reason given, for whoever finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. For wisdom is for those who want life. And you see again and again through uh, this section how life is brought up as, as a motivation for learning wisdom. If you just look into the first part of the next chapter, uh, again, wisdom is personified as, at the beginning and as saying in verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in hears for him who lacks understanding. She says to him, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed, the sustenance of life. Uh, forsake foolishness and live. See, there's only two options here, to be wise and live or to be foolish and die. And we're not talking about eternal life versus eternal death, although that's certainly included. We're talking about living life well, living life successfully, living life in all of the richness that God intended, that you can only do that on the basis of the Word of God. And so as we look at verses uh, 32 to 36 of chapter 8, we see the motivation, the contrast, of course, in verse 6, 36, is that the one who rejects wisdom is the one who sins against wisdom and wrongs his own soul. It's self-destructive behavior. And all those who hate me, wisdom says, love death. So this is the choice. Again and again, we see this choice in Scripture. Moses set this choice before the Israelites, before he uh, went up on Mount Nebo uh, to die physically and go to be with the Lord. Uh, he, as they were entering the land, he said, I set before you this day life or death. Joshua as well set that same choice before that generation. Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Again and again in Scripture, that's the choice. And that's the choice that's presented to us as we continue this study in Proverbs. Again and again, are we going to choose life or choose death? It's a daily decision. We wake up in the morning and we have a choice. Is today going to be a day where we're going to choose wisdom or are we going to choose folly and and death.
So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and look at how the uh, writer sets this up. Instead of giving a challenge to, to the son to listen and to pay attention, to hear and to respond, he, he focuses on the objective availability of wisdom. It says, and again, personifying wisdom uh, as a person. Now, wisdom here, there's some, I just want to put this in there because there's some who may have heard this. There are those who teach that wisdom here is a personification also of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have heard that. What's the problem with that? Talk about allegory. That's exactly where that comes from. And Tuesday night, Thursday night, this week, we talked about the significance of literal interpretation. Literal interpretation has certain guidelines, and you don't just look here and go, oh, well, this relates to the thinking of Christ, so therefore wisdom here must be the Lord Jesus Christ. Where would you get that anywhere in Scripture? New Testament never makes that identification. Neither does the Old. Wisdom is personified here, and it's, but it's actually that component of God's omniscience that is seen in the skill with which he created all things. And, and that knowledge of the Lord, that skill is available, available to us as finite image bearers. We have it freely made available to us through his word. This is not talking about uh, some sort of veiled reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about the thinking of God, the thinking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is that thinking which is uh, present in their omniscience. So wisdom is presented here as a woman crying out. Now, the interesting thing here is that although this differs in some ways from the previous a uh, couple of chapters. Remember, I pointed out earlier that in chapter 5 and chapter 6, 20 to the end of 6 and all of 7, there's the warning to the son about getting involved with the immoral woman, the uh, adulterous wife. And that is stands in contrast to the woman he should be involved with, which is wisdom. And so the adulterous wife is the one calling uh, and tempting. It, it is a, uh, a superficial uh, fulfillment of, uh, of, of gratification of the flesh here and now, whereas wisdom is that which has a long-term view and is, uh, reflects eternal, uh, eternal values. And it's easy to succumb to the immediate gratification of the flesh rather than uh, focusing on that which has eternal and everlasting uh, value. In fact, what we see in the structure of the uh, 7th chapter and the 8th chapter is what is known as a, as a diptych, uh, where you have these two set up in almost an antithetical section, but they're tied together where the unchaste wife is shows the path to self-destruction versus wisdom, the personification of wisdom as, as a woman uh, offering uh, herself as the source of life. And so that's, that's uh, part of the imagery that we see behind this chapter. So wisdom is crying out. We see does not understanding lift up her voice. That's where we get the uh, feminine idea 
in this um, uh, personification of wisdom. Now, what we see here is that there is a universal cry from wisdom to all mankind. She takes her stand on the hill. Look, as we look ahead to verses 2 and 3, she takes her stand on top of the hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the door. Six different places are mentioned here because different things happen in each of these places. And what, we're, what we see is that wisdom has presented herself to the entire human race and in every area of, of human endeavor. This is reflected in a previous verse, very similar, in Proverbs 1, 20 and 21. Wisdom calls out, uh, calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Now, what goes on in the open squares? This is where the market is located. This is the the, the marketplace. This is where commerce is conducted. This is where uh, people hear the news of the day and find out about what is affecting their world. And so wisdom is located in the place where there is the greatest amount of social intercourse. Wisdom is available. Uh, she cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. Uh, she speaks her words. So uh, Proverbs 1 mirrors what we have in Proverbs 8, 1 through 3 is that wisdom is available everywhere. It's not hidden under some rock up in the Himalayas somewhere. You don't have to go to Tibet to find the wisdom of God's word. You don't have to go on, uh, take special courses uh, from some guru somewhere. Uh, you don't have to seek it in some sort of uh, uh, mystical symbolism. It's freely available uh, to one and all. And so this reminds us that the word of God and the truth of God's word is always available to everyone. Uh, verse 4 expresses it in a synonymous parallelism. Uh, to you, O men, I call, and then in parallel to that, my voice is to the sons of men. The word here for men reflects the entire human race. It's not a word emphasizing just males. It is wisdom is available to the entire human race and is crying out. Uh, remember, the flip side of this is that the son is, is challenged to listen, to hear, to respond. But, in, uh, but what wisdom is doing is seeking, is exercising that grace initiative uh, toward man from God that God is constantly making himself available. You have people saying, well, I look for God here, I look for God there, I haven't seen God. Well, you're not really looking. You just have deceived yourself into that. We have a couple of great passages uh, that talk about the universal availability of the knowledge of God. From the Old Testament, we have Psalm 19, 1 through 4. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. This is uh, one of the great psalms. One, um, you get a chance, you want to memorize an entire psalm. This is a great psalm to memorize. It's not as short as the 23rd psalm, but it's 14 verses, so it's not as long as the 119th psalm. You want to challenge sometime, memorize the 119th psalm. 118th is the shortest, 119th is the longest. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
is the opening line. And parallel is the firmament. The word firmament in Hebrew, rakia, has to do with that, uh, the, the, the upper canopy of the heaven. So in the poetic parallelism here, firmament is, is a synonym for the heavens. The heavens speak. Now the heavens don't speak audibly. The heavens don't speak with, with, uh, uh, with words and sentences and paragraphs. It's a nonverbal communication. So as we observe the heavens, there are things that we can learn from observing uh, the creation. And we can discern certain things about the creator from discerning the works of his creation, the things such as order, purpose, design, all of these are present and indicate that there must be something greater that has uh, designed and uh, been the someone who's been the architect of this creation. The firmament shows his handiwork, the details, a day-and-a-day utter speech. Notice this is talking about a form of revelation. Uh, it utters speech, but it's nonverbal speech, yet the communication is just as clear. Night into night reveals knowledge, so you can learn specific things about God. You just can't learn enough to be saved. There's a, it's a nonverbal communication. A nonverbal communication, or what we call in theology general revelation, must always be interpreted on the basis of special revelation. And verse 3 says, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. This answers the question, what about the heathen? What about those who never heard? Psalm 19.3 says, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Every human being has heard, has seen, has understood, as we'll see, the nonverbal revelation from God in his creation. This is wisdom crying out. It's available to all. Uh, verse 4 says, Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Now if we go on and read in Psalm 19 to the second half of the psalm, there is a praise for the written word of God. It's the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Notice it's the written word that gives information for uh, for conversion, not general revelation. So there's the, the scripture is very clear as to what each realm of revelation can communicate. Uh, the statutes of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. And then we go on with various other uh, uh, descriptions of the function of the written revelation. And then in verse 9, we read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, why do we shift from the external revelation to the fear of the Lord? We, when we look at Proverbs, we understand that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a response to revelation. As we come to understand the immensity, the righteousness, the justice of God, then and his sovereignty, we realize how how great and awesome God is, and that we should be under His authority, and that generates in us a respect, an awe, a fear of God. That's, so it's, it's used there as a response to the uh, written law and the written judgments of God that are being praised here. And then in verses ten, ten and eleven. 
we have a statement of the value of God's word. Moreover, uh, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Well, that finds a parallel in our passage in Proverbs chapter uh, Proverbs chapter eight, because as we get into the second part of this uh, this opening introduction, we will hear or uh, read about the value of of, of God's word. Uh, the fear of the Lord is mentioned in verse 13, to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way. And then we read how valuable wisdom is to those who rule, and concluding with a statement of the value of, of wisdom in verses 18 and following, riches and honor with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than much fine gold, uh, articulates the same thought as uh, Psalm 19. My revenue better than choice silver. And so we see these same ideas expressed that, that wisdom is available to all and it is more valuable than all things. Now the New Testament counterpart to Psalm 19 is in Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God, the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That sort of represents the major characteristic of the human race in that they're truth suppressors. Well, where do they get the truth? It's known to them internally and externally from the very beginning because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's everybody. Nobody can say, well, what about so-and-so who lived in some pagan country, Irinjaya, India, Brazil, the rainforest, and they never heard. Well, Psalm 19 says it's spoken in a language everybody can understand, a nonverbal language, and Romans 1.19 says that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has made it clear to everyone, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So what we see is that wisdom is crying out, understanding is lifting her voice to one and all. So no one has an excuse to say, well, I didn't know. It's available to all. And not only is it just it's not just passively available to all. It is actively seeking responders. It's crying out, uh, lifting up her voice. Now, where does she go? Verses 2 and 3. She takes her stand on top of the hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city at the entrance of the doors. Now, each of these is significant. There is a certain amount of overlap and parallelism here, but each speaks of different areas of, of, of life and commerce. That first phrase, she takes her stand on the top of the high hill. If you go, if you travel in any of the uh, areas of the Middle East, the ancient world, where do you find uh, the temples set on top of the high hill? You go to uh, Athens, you go to the Acropolis, 
It's the high hill. Every city had an acropolis. It's the the high point where they would set a temple to one of the pagan gods. Uh, the, the high point was understood to be of value militarily because this gave the city uh, the opportunity to see any approaching army uh, to protect itself. It's harder to charge uphill than downhill, and so it gave the uh, the, the defenders of the city a place of uh, a, a, a place of defense. And it strengthened their position. So it is used, the word, same word that's used here is used in Jeremiah 51, 53 as a place of fortification. So the highest point is a place that's visible, a place where uh, if you cry out from the highest point, it's heard to its furthest extent. And so the emphasis here is that uh, wisdom, it takes a, its most advantageous position to reach the most people to be seen and heard by the most people. Then the second phrase, uh, <clears throat> beside the way. Now, this is a word we've seen again and again. It's the word derek in Hebrew, which is the basic word that's still used in modern Hebrew for the highway, uh, the road, the path, whatever. It's a word used over and over again in, in the Psalms for making this choice between the path leading to righteousness and the path leading to the to evil, the path to life or the path to death, that there's only only these two options. Uh, beside the way uh, is talking about being out on the uh, highways and byways of life. And then the third is at the crossroads. The crossroads, the crossroads is where the pathways intersect. When the path, pathways intersect, that's your volition point. That's where you have to choose, are you going to follow the path of life or are you going to follow the path of death? So the wisdom goes to the most advantageous place to reach as many as possible, goes to the pathways where where people travel, where people go. It's not off the beaten path, but it's on the beaten path, and it's at the crossroads where decisions are made. Now, there's only two options in the Bible. You don't have a third option. We see this in the, one of the shorter Psalms, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks. See, he's got to walk on a path. So he's walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standing in the path of sinners. Notice that how this imagery of a path or way uh, uh, is seen here. St- nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And the result is he's fruitful, he's prosperous, he's successful. Verse 3 is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whatever, uh, whose leaf also shall not wither, whatever he does shall prosper. In contrast are the ungodly. Notice there's not a middle place. You're either uh, the blessed man who is meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, or you're living like the ungodly, one or the other. There's not a middle road. There's, there's not lukewarm. Uh, it's, it's either following the path of God or not. Those are the only options. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That last verse, you've got two options, the way of the righteous or the way of the ungodly. Now, the second three areas where wisdom is available is the gates, 
the entry of the city and the entrance of the doors. Now, each of these re- refers to a slightly different area of the entry points uh, to the city. Uh, the gates, these were uh, rather significant areas in a city in the ancient world because it was at the city gates that the leaders of the city, usually referred to as the elders of the city, would gather together. This is where judgments would take place, where decisions would be made that would affect every everyone in the, in the city. So it's a place where they would... Uh, buy and sell, it was the local courtroom. It was where they would settle disputes. It's where politics would be carried out. And so wisdom is available at the places that most significantly affect our lives. Uh, the entries uh, to the city. Uh, the entries to the city are the places where people would come into the city in order to do business, to do commerce. So this relates to the economic activity of the city. Wisdom applies to your everyday economic life. At the entrance of the openings, uh, the openings are, if you go into these gates, there were these little rooms off to the side, uh, which is where people would go in order to conduct business and to uh, uh, make decisions. And what we see here is wisdom is making herself available to everyone in, in every for every area, uh, every area of life. Verse four, as I stated, makes is available to all men, but specifically to the simple ones. Uh, Oh, you simple ones, and the cry is to understand prudence. And you fools, be of an understanding heart. Now, the idea here, the address on the one hand is to the simple ones. The uh, Hebrew word here means those who are open. Uh, the basic word for an opening it, or a doorway is petach. And, um, in fact, one of the earliest settlements of, of Zionists into Israel is called Petach Tikva, which is the door of hope. And uh, this is just outside of uh, Tel Aviv. And this was originally founded by some early uh, Jewish colonists back in the late 19th century. But that word Petach, Petich, is the uh, form of the word here, and it really refers to someone who's very naive. He doesn't know anything, and thus he's open to anything. He can be uh, easily manipulated or deceived because he, uh, in in the worst-case scenario, he's just open to any viewpoint. He'll do what anybody wants him to do because, after all, all things are equal. Every worldview is equal. Every culture is equal. So we're not going to criticize or condemn anyone. So it, it, it runs the range of someone who just doesn't know any better, and thus he's open to being deceived, to someone who is just open to any and every area uh, of evil. So he is it said of the of the naive one. Uh, understand prudence. Prudence is the application of wisdom, Another, just another synonym for wisdom and understanding. Uh, understand prudence, and you fools, the fool is the one who has conscientiously rejected doctrine. You fools, be of an understanding heart. Uh, open your minds to the truth. That's the idea there. We've seen this idiom of, of using the heart for the mind two or three times in the previous lesson. So the challenge for us here is, are we going to respond to the revelation of God? Now, you who are here, you've responded. You're here this morning. But how much more is there for you to respond? 
you have the full teaching of God's word, the entire counsel of God. What level of priority are you assigning to the word of God in your life? Not just the learning of God's word, but its skillful application. It's not just enough to have notebooks filled with notes. It's not just enough to have a nice Bible that has all kinds of notes in it that you've listened to, but that has to be internalized into your soul, and that's the only way your soul is fortified. And then you have to choose to live it out. So it's not just a matter of making choices to go to church. It's not just uh, choices to listen to Bible class. It's not just a matter of making choices to uh, believe the Word of God when it's taught, but to utilize it and apply it every in every single uh, opportunity. That's the path to life. Not doing that is the path to self-destruction and the path to death. So we'll come back next time and begin in verse 6 to look at the value that's presented uh, of wisdom and the characteristics that are stated here uh, and how that relates to its ultimate significance in the uh, rest of the chapter. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today. Uh, We thank you that uh, we have your word and we have God the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word and to see how it applies in our own lives. Father, I pray that each of us would recognize that no matter what our level of uh, desire is for your word, what our level of uh, desire is and commitment is to gain instruction, to buy truth and sell it not, that this can always be increased and that we need to continue to push ourselves and to press on to even greater and greater achievements in the realm of learning and applying your word. For as long as we have... Uh, breath in our in our bodies, we have the opportunity to learn, we have the opportunity to grow, and we have the opportunity to glorify you. We pray that we might not become complacent, we might not settle for just where we are, but that we might push forward to uh, to true excellence in every area of our spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning, it's uh, unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make this very clear to them. Scripture teaches that we're all born spiritually dead. We're separated from you. We have no eternal life. We are, as it were, the walking dead. We're, we're, spiritually, we're zombies. We're, not, we're physically alive. We're spiritually dead. The only hope is to be born again. Uh, that is a technical term in Scripture for someone who trusts in Christ and at that instant, you give us a new life. You give us a, uh, we're made new creatures in Christ. We're given new hope, a new destiny. And the only way that, that we can have this is uh, by faith in you. It's not by works. It's not by doing something. It's not through ritual. It is simply by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with uh, what we've learned today. We continue to pray for our nation. We pray that we might have a uh, time tomorrow of reflection to remember uh, those who have uh, made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, that we might enjoy all of the uh, many things that we have because they have given of their lives that we might have a rich, full life. And above all, for our Lord Jesus Christ who made that sacrifice that we might have eternal life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.